Oh yes, you lie like the emperor that you are. Good morning and welcome to the Desert Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Brooks. And I'm Fran Nielsen. How are you doing this morning, Fran? I've been listening back to our pod and I've realised I really mumble my surname. And now I feel like my whole life is a lie because I spent a lot of time saying my surname to people and then not being able to spell it. And now that I hear myself say my surname, I feel like I wouldn't understand how to spell that either. Because it just comes out as Nielsen. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, that was just a little aside. But other than that, I'm very blind. Yeah, poor Fran fell asleep in her contact lenses, so. Which I actually never do. It's the worst when that happens. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. crusty. Hot. (laughs) (laughs) Such a catch. (laughs) How are you? I'm not the freshest this morning. I'm somewhat under the weather. My banter might not be as sharp as it is usually. Oh dear. I know. That's the only reason people listen. Yeah, although I've been looking back at our stats. We've had some exciting stats this week. Orange just... man and white male have been at, on it. They've on really it. been yeah. on it. Okay. <laughs> Fran's 10 minute take officially has more listens than episode two. I'm still mad about this because I love episode two. <laughs> well, we're the only people who like episode two, so people wouldn't know because they're not listening to it that's quite funny (laughs) Uh, it's it's not yet nine o'clock on a Saturday morning so it's just a bit much isn't it I'm supposed to be going to a conference later so that's why we're having to record at such an unhealthy hour of the day but um it's not great I'm going for brunch I'm such a white girl I knew you were going to say it. There was the eye roll and the big <laughs> sigh and it was coming and I just thought I'd beat you to it. So, Very true, very true. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's not a bottomless bunch if that helped. That would be even worse. <laughs> Let's jump right in. So Fran, you're covering, what are you covering today? Brexit, mm-hmm. saga that never ends. Oh, I know. So basically where we at is this week was supposed to be the week some progress was seen on the backstop. Um, right yes yes we had Theresa May flying all over the place actually this poor woman and I don't say that lightly because I don't like her but she must be exhausted I know I did see a really funny thing on Twitter where someone was just like if Theresa May has friends someone might like to buy her a spa weekend (laughs) (laughs) she'd been flying all over the place she went to Brussels she went to Dublin she went to Belfast she didn't combine her trip to Belfast and Dublin in one. That seems like poor planning. It does seem like poor planning, to be honest, because it's a less than two hour drive between the two. So they could have met halfway. But yeah, so this is the week that we were hoping something was going to happen and we were going to see some sort of progress that said these are the things we're willing to compromise on the backstop. And basically that just didn't happen. So on Sunday, the Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, had said that existing technology could ensure no hard border um, on the island of Ireland once the UK leaves the EU and Ireland basically just turned around and were like, what are you talking about? A spokesperson for the Tornister, Simon Coveney, um, said that details of the technology had never even been shared with the Irish government or the EU. So don't know what Javid is going on about there, to be honest. And then the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, he expressed his frustration because he said all these alternative arrangements to the backstop that they're talking about, they're just revisiting things that have already been rejected and that's not going to work. So I think we have to remember that sort of the withdrawal agreement and the backstop took two years to draw up in the first place. And the backstop is a situation that no one particularly loves it on the EU side or the UK side, but that was the compromise they came up with. And um, the alternative arrangements that are being spouted, everything that's come out so far is something that's already been dismissed two years mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. So that sort of is a a bit of a thankless task, to be honest. Um, so basically what happened was following last week's vote on the Graham Brady Amendment, this week began with three days of talks between the Brexit Secretary, Stephen Barclay, 
who we know nothing about. Oh, he's such an enigma. He just sort of. This is what number is this? Brexit secretaries? Are we on? David Davis. Dominic Robb. But yeah, I'd never heard of him. So Monday marked the beginning of three days of talks between the Brexit secretary, Stephen Barclay, government officials and MPs to discuss alternative arrangements. So the talks are being held by the newly formed Alternative Arrangements Working Group, which is comprised of both Leave and Remain MPs, mostly Leave. This didn't really seem to get off the ground, the Alternative Arrangements Working Group, because for one, they just appear to be discussing things that had already been ruled out several years ago. And then Alex Wickham, my favourite reporter, he released this article and he's he's normally, like, the sum of the scoops he gets, he's normally on the money. So basically, the, the Alternative Arrangements Working Group descended into acrimony by Wednesday. So the group was scheduled to head to Northern Ireland for a trip, which um, they were going to meet with local businesses and politicians and travel to the Irish border, which everyone loves doing because they stand in a field and they basically go, oh, look, there's nothing. There's no infrastructure. Isn't this great? Yeah, we can maintain it. And also be briefed by intelligence officials on security implications of Brexit. Basically, the meeting didn't happen and it was called off and splits between Brexiteers and the ERG, the sort of hardcore Brexiteers were emerging and there's a lot of distrust. One of the ERG MPs told Alex Wickham that distrust between Brexiteers and the government led to the trip being cancelled and um, they basically said it was a trap. So I don't think we'll be hearing many solutions from the Alternative Arrangements Working Group um, and by the end of the week they kind of disappeared and sort of at the beginning of the week everyone was talking about them. By the end of the week to be honest no one really cared. In addition to that Theresa May then went to Brussels to see if they could come to some sort of agreement. Basically she was told no. <laughs> and uh, Jean-Claude Juncker basically said he'll agree to meet with her before the end of February again to discuss where they're at. Which essentially means if you were hoping for a vote next week I don't think it's going to happen. I actually think that might be put off for a couple of weeks because nothing substantial has changed for anyone to even vote on. So I think from from the EU's point of view, everything they've said in that they're not willing to renegotiate or reopen the withdrawal agreement and that they'll meet before the end of February again with the Prime Minister. February's just become a bit of a write-off. Now, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn wrote to the Prime Minister setting out his party's price for supporting a Brexit deal. Which, like, Jeremy, nearly three years too late, mate. Like, yes, I know. Now is not, at, the fi- at the nth hour is not the time. Also, um, it, was the, it was basically everything that was in that deal is exactly what Nicola Sturgeon suggested, like, two years ago. So the demands included a permanent and comprehensive UK-wide custom union aligned with the EU's custom rules, but with an agreement that includes a UK sale on future EU trade deals. So honestly, I just, like... Yes, this is more ideal in my eyes that if we're going to do Brexit, at least it's softer. But honestly, what's the point? Labour also asked for close alignment with the EU single market and dynamic alignment on rights and protections for workers so that UK standards do not fall behind those of the EU. Um, And the letter also proposed participation in EU agencies and funding programmes and agreements on security and keeping access to the European arrest warrant. Now, according to reports, Brussels officials have said that... um, Donald Tusk, who is president of the European Commission, told Mrs May that Mrs. Co- Mr Corbyn's plan could be a way out of the current deadlock. So the EU were kind of interested in this, whether Theresa would go for it. I, I think she would struggle to go for something like that with the um, the, the really hardcore Brexiteers. Um, and then actually, very interestingly, the US got involved a little bit this week. So the Congress in the United States at the Capitol were marking the 100th anniversary of the doll. Tornister Simon Coveney went over there. He was doing talks on the future of Irish-American trade. And Republican Congressman Peter King told an audience, if the British want to consider any type of trade agreement with the United States, it is important that the soft border is maintained. So the US getting involved. And this comes after, um, at the end of January, a different congressman, um, a Democratic congressman, Brendan Boyle, introduced a resolution in Congress outlining opposition to the establishment of a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. But my favourite bit, and we obviously have to talk about this because it was in the news so much. So speaking at an event in Brussels with the Taoiseach, Leo Radke, 
the European Council President Donald Tusk said, I've been wondering what that special place in hell looks like for those who promoted Brexit without even a sketch of a plan how to carry it out safely. Katie, thoughts? I mean, I, I basically completely agree with him. We both agree with him because we've spoken before about sort of the dangers of no deal. And if you listen to my 10 minute take that came out on Wednesday last week, you know, I talked about how you shouldn't hold a referendum without any sort of plan on what you're voting for. So I think we're both mad about that. But do you think it was very diplomatic for him to say it? So I'm actually in two minds about this. The first thing I should say is that I think the reporting of it in the UK has been terrible because everyone keeps saying that he said there's a special place in hell for Brexiteers, full stop. And that isn't what he said. So that should be sort of clarified that he specifically was speaking about people who promoted leaving without any idea of how they were going to do it. He also did take shots at the Remain campaign. So I think it's more even handed than perhaps people think it is. It's not just talking about Brexit. Mm. And actually, <laughs> I follow this Twitter account, which is just called Special Place in Hell. And it's a it's a box that basically it just repeat it just uh, retweets anytime anyone mentions the phrase special place in hell. And it had a field day after Donald Tusk. Oh, did, were you following this before his remarks? Yes. Oh, fantastic. I fear this might be a molehill of which has been made a mountain. Yeah, and even after he says it, sort of the mics are still on. Leo turned to him and they were leaving the stage and he shook his hand and said, oh, the British are going to give you a terrible time in the press for this. And Tusk sort of, you know, he's smiling and going, yeah, I know. Um, so I think I think it was quite a calculated phrase, putting pressure on the situation, I think. It's fewer than 50 days before we leave the EU and crash out. So it is, you know, we are in, in the crisis mode. It is time to, mm. to up the ante. So after Donald Tusk's um, comments, Sammy Wilson, who is a DUP MP and just in general quite a ridiculous man, um, said, tweeted that uh, Tusk is arrogant and devilish, trident wielding Euro maniac. Basically, what happened, this all kicked off on Belfast Twitter because Professor John Brewer, he's a lecturer in post conflict uh, studies and he does a lot of work with the George Mitchell Institute, which is a special institute at the university for post-conflict and reconciliation etc and he tweeted special place in hell for no deal brexiteers question mark hell is too good for them (laughs) and this all all kicked off so uh it started with sam mcbride who is a political editor for the belfast newsletter which is one of the one of the local papers here He retweeted this and said, you might think that this tweet comes from some excitable extremist. In fact, it is from Queen's University Belfast, a professor of post-conflict studies who has written about the need for forgiveness after conflict and, quote, public tolerance and compromise. This was then retweeted by several DUP councillors. Professor Brewer then came back and sort of said, well, I'm just saying it's sort of figuratively because hell isn't a real place. Uh, So DUP councillor for Ards and North Down. Peter Martin uh, wrote to the Vice Chancellor of Queen's about the professor's comments, basically, and said that many of my constituents have identified themselves as no deal Brexiteers. Free speech is valued in a democracy, but it comes with responsibility. Katie, I know you have strong feelings. <laughs> the whole idea of free speech is a hill upon which I'm willing to die. Free speech protections protect you from essentially being censored by the government, but it doesn't protect you from social consequences of the things that you say. And it's very bizarre to me that the DUP would fall back on the argument that with the right to free speech, there comes a responsibility to moderate tone when... Which is something the DUP never do. The DUP have never moderated their tone in their entire life, and any time anyone says that they should perhaps reconsider the way they approach problems in their uh, statements, they fall back on this idea of oh, free speech. I know my free speech impeded. So again, I just think it's a molehill of which we've made a mountain. It's I'm cross about it. Frank can see my face right now. I'm cross. Very nonplussed. <laughs> 
Well, also, I don't think the language in that comment is any worse than some of the stuff that Sammy Wilson says on the reg. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sammy Wilson, to clarify, DUP MP, who is a very unusual man. Very unusual. He, he also loves a Twitter. But yeah, basically, that sums up Brexit. So it's a week where I feel like a lot should have happened because the vote is supposedly Thursday the 14th. Um, but predictably, not very much happened. Mm. We're no closer to anything. Suppose it, in some ways it makes no deal more likely or yeah. it makes extending Article 50 more likely. Oh, and I should say, Corbyn's letter actually angered a lot of Labour MPs because back at the party conference last year, Jeremy Corbyn basically said, if you couldn't force a general election, which is the situation we're in now because he lost the no confidence vote, so there is general election isn't on the cards. He hasn't been able to force it. He said if he couldn't force a general election, he would back a second referendum. And a lot of Labour MPs are very upset because he's turned around with this compromise. Yes, and the Labour Party has once again been embroiled in a scandal regarding anti-Semitism this week, hasn't it? Oh, yes. Because MP for somewhere near Liverpool, Luciana Berger. Yeah. She's Jewish. Um, and there have been moves to deselect her by members of her local Labour Party for being too pro-Israel. Labour's in big trouble, and I think post-Brexit, we'll mm. have to do a, a whole episode dedicated to just what a mess we're in. in. In the two largest parties, both of them are at very real risk of splitting. Mm. In many ways, I think it is perhaps the afterbirth of coming to the point where two parties have dominated for so long yeah because i think people are now realizing that as much as i think we would love to say we all have more in common what this whole brexit process has shown is that actually there are serious divisions in both our political system and our society and two parties is unlikely to to reflect that appropriately who knows what is going to occur well so yeah no good news there really (laughs) <laughs> um, we're not holding our breath that anything is going to be voted on or passed on Thursday. Mm-mm. So that's where we're at. Fabulous. Thank you, Fran, for obviously an excellent coverage of Brexit once again. We're going to take a short break. I'm going to make myself a cup of tea. Oh. And then when we come back, I will talk about the bin fire that is America. <laughs> Right, we returned. I have myself another cup of tea. Actually, this is tea made with the tea bags that Fran supplies for me. Oh, well, that is exciting. Indeed. Sometimes you always I have a whole tea bag on just one mug. Yeah, I always have a whole tea bag on one mug. Oh, I thought you saved them for special occasions when you used a teapot. No, I've now just taken to they're the only tea that I will use. All right, To clarify for our tea listeners, Fran buys me my favourite tea bags from Betty's in York whenever she goes to York. So I'm thrilled. Got a whole box waiting in the cupboard. Oh, have you? Okay. Mm. I was about to say, if you're, if you're using a whole tea bag per mug, I might just start buying more than one box at a time. Well, I also drink quite a lot of coffee. So Yeah, that's true. But you're giving it up. I know I'm giving up coffee for Lent. I'm dreading it. Oh, actually, it's almost Lent. Lent is the start of March. So Is it the start of March? Okay. I think it's the fourth this year. So I've It's after yeah. Shrove Tuesday, isn't it? Well yes. Oh gosh. Anyway, yes, we're back and we're gonna we're gonna tackle America. Right. State of the Union, I feel Well it was exactly what we predicted it was gonna be. Yeah, I, I feel like if you if you want to know you just listen to our episode, not the actual state of the union because Yeah, it was a lot of lies on immigration, a lot of lies on the economy, a lot of lies on healthcare. Strangely, um, Donald Trump spent the whole time saying that he wanted to, you know, be unifying and all of that kind of thing, but there's a tradition on the State of the Union Day that the president has an off the record lunch with reporters and he spent the whole time at that lunch basically just like crapping all over the Democrats. Lovely. And obviously, it is not off the record. Like it's off the record, but yeah, yeah. Um, but Nancy Pelosi did have um, an excellent moment. She's now gay. She's ah, oh, she's such a wonderful woman. Yeah. She has five children. Did you know that? Only she had some. Mm, not five children. That's a lot. 
I wouldn't say that the State of the Union was particularly, it's just fallen off the face of the earth now. And it, it usually, it used to be the case that a State of the Union would be a solid two week news cycle. I think it was two days. It just felt like a really unremarkable political event. Mm. We then have a couple more quite interesting stories actually this week. So the first one is um, a Supreme Court decision. Which, oh, I love them. Yes, very interesting. This week, a case was brought to the Supreme Court regarding abortion. And it came out of Louisiana and essentially what it would have done would have been severely restrict abortion within the state. And in a very surprise move, Chief Justice John Roberts, who is typically thought of as from the conservative wing, he was a um, a Bush Jr. nominee. Mm -hmm. Quite young as well. Mm. Been around for a while. Yeah, he sided with the liberal wing of the court in a five to four decision blocking the law that would have severely restricted abortion, which is very interesting considering that Anthony Kennedy, who stepped down last year and was replaced by Brett Kavanaugh, boo hiss, generally was seen as the somewhat slightly more centrist, maybe a little bit more liberal. So this is really, this is quite an unusual move for him, really. Yeah, it's general approach is that he leans right. So that that's an interesting thing that I think is worth watching. I don't think that that means that reproductive rights in the United States are safe by any stretch of the imagination. But John Roberts has a real belief about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, and he's a real institutionalist in that regard. So any moves to restrict reproductive rights would be a much more slow go approach compared to maybe I mean Brett Kavanaugh really now sits at the far right of the court Neil Gorsuch not much further in so this is this is a interesting move certainly from John Mm. Roberts something to watch that perhaps someone who has seen the impact of a a skewed supreme court Mm. so one to watch in that regard. Next up, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker has announced he's running for president. Fran looks so unenthusiastic about this. Are you a fan? Are you not a fan? How do you feel about Cory Booker? I don't know enough about him, actually, but just worry that this is the same state that also elected Chris Christie. So. Yes, that's true. Slightly concerned. But then it's also the same state that produced Bruce Springsteen. And the cast of Jersey Shore. He's actually a very interesting guy. So he still lives at the moment in essentially like a housing association. Do you think he still lives with his mum? No, lol. Don't think he's married though. So he's he's very liberal in, in most senses. He is very passionate about urban development. There was a time when he staged a 10-day hunger strike. He has lived in a tent at various points to highlight issues with housing development. He's very passionate about sort of housing and urban issues. There is some suggestion that he is a bit too close to Wall Street. Mm. and big banks and big bank donors and that kind of thing he also was the first senator to testify against another senator he testified at jeff sessions confirmation hearing to be attorney general and he has introduced a bill called the special counsel independence and integrity act which is designed to protect the fbi investigation into the russia connection to the 2016 election So how do you put his chances against someone like Gillibrand, Harris? I've been plotting the likelihoods. um... Yes. That one's for you, Maddie. Leave our data alone. (laughs) Data's really important. Yes. So, um, interesting. I think Cory Booker is, in a similar way to Elizabeth Warren, he is very good at telling his own story. And when, so his launch was very impressive. I thought his video was very good. I actually thought his launch was better than Kamala Harris. I think him entering the race might push the likelihood of someone like Gillibrand further down the list, but it would probably increase chances for someone like Elizabeth Warren or maybe Sherrod Brown, etc. Because Cory Booker is very, very liberal on social issues and actually his his voting record on economic issues is also very liberal but he does have this reputation of being more kind of classic dnc party liner type thing um and so if 
because someone like Gillibrand doesn't sort of hasn't carved out maybe so much of a place in the party defining where she is because she previously was very very pro gun rights and she had like a an A rating from the NRA and then she changed her stance on that and that kind of thing so she's it's not that she's inconsistent because you're allowed to change your opinions on things yeah absolutely um yes it's she's got less of a kind of um I think she's just less understood by people Mm-hmm. That said, this week Elizabeth Warren has not had a great week. A document came out from when she registered for the Texas Bar Association, so when she was registering registering to practice in the state of Texas, she put her race on this registration card as Native American. Literally why? So for anyone who doesn't know about this, I think we have talked about it briefly. Elizabeth Warren is embroiled in a scandal about her heritage essentially she's always been told that it's always been part of her sort of family story that someone in their family had native american blood and i i don't like that phrase but you know what i mean yeah yeah someone yeah it sort of came out probably mm, i want to say four or five years ago as an issue and actually i was talking to a friend of ours who is from massachusetts mm-hmm. hi cara and we were talking about this over New Year and, and we were just saying how she should have fired whoever does her PR when that scandal came out because it's handled so badly and it's now followed her. It doesn't help that for quite a long time when she was at Harvard, she was employed with her race being stated as white. But then after a while, it was changed to be Native American and then it was changed back again. And a lot of controversy about whether or not she's sort of claiming something that isn't really the truth. Mm. Trump is very good at picking up on people's weak points as people because you'll see. But not his own. No, but if you look back at the 2016 primary debates, the Republicans, because they had a field that was huge in the same way that the Democrats are going to have a field that's huge this time around. There were 17 of them. Yeah. Trump was very, very good at picking people's weak spots. Mm-hmm. So he referred to Marco Rubio as little Marco and things like that. And yeah. Little Marco, lion Ted. Yeah. Crooked Hillary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... So Trump has really picked up on this thing with Elizabeth Warren and he refers to her as Pocahontas, which is that is racist for a number of reasons, not against Elizabeth Warren, but against Native American people in general. And I think this form coming out has seriously damaged her chances. I don't think it's I don't think it's written her campaign off entirely, but it's it's not not great. No. Yeah, when it came out a few years ago, it should have she should have just at the time said, you know, I shouldn't have done it. I thought I had more Native American heritage than I actually do now. It, uh, like now I've done the research and I apologise. Yeah, yeah. But and that's fair enough because if you're if you're brought up being told something and it sort of becomes family urban legend and mm. you know how you unless you go and have a DNA test or unless you, you really look back into your family's history and family trees and stuff which not everything is always recorded so you can see how that would happen yes and if tackled quickly enough you can come out and say look this is what I was taught and this is what like I was brought up with but I've now looked into it and it's a difficult one so I I actually at the moment I don't know I think Cory Booker's got a fairly decent chance Mm. um has a strong liberal record I just wonder if he will be seen as a bit too polished, a bit too Washington elite. Mm, a bit too smooth. Are we waiting for a Biden announcement? Are we waiting for a John Kerry announcement? Are we waiting for a better York announcement? Mm. It's a crowded field already. It is a crowded field already. I don't think John Kerry. No, that that of Biden and Kerry, I prefer Kerry, but I don't think Kerry's going to run again. No. And also, I think so when Kerry was running against Bush in the uh, uh, 2004 election, the Republicans ran what I guess could be described as a a smear campaign against him. And it was just really easy for them to do it. And I think in a world like that was pre the takeoff of social media and that kind of thing. Mm. It would just be so easy. And like we said, Trump is really good at picking people's personal sore spots and their their weaknesses. And I just, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's difficult. I think Biden's too old. Mm. That's the issue. Um, but it's a similar age to Trump, though. Mm, yes. But, but Trump is actually old. 
I also think Trump is too old, you know. So. Yeah. Biden's a difficult one because he is very popular and he would be very good at, at the campaign and so on. But I, the, my only worry with Biden is Trump is very good at whipping up his base's racial animosity towards Obama. Mm. And I wonder with Biden if he's just obviously so associated with Obama being his vice yeah. president that... And Obama would inevitably come out and campaign for him. Yeah, because they have the cutest bromance in the world. They do. Um, I miss them. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Beto is an interesting one because he says he is going to let people know by the end of the month whether or not he's running for president. And he's, you know, he's losing ground. The longer he leaves it, if he wants to be president, the longer he leaves it, the worse it's going to get. Yeah, it's sort of, it's that, do you run with the momentum that, well, at the moment, he's, he's not allowed to do anything because he gave up his congressional seat it's sort of that that tension between do you run now whilst you have the momentum or do you leave it another four years um get elected to to something go back into congress or maybe state legislature or something because the the rate of incumbents being re-elected in america is very high Mm. and so if i were going to run for president i always feel like the time to do it isn't in between a president's potential two terms which is why yeah. someone, someone like John Kerry, I was disappointed that he ran against Bush for his second term. I feel like John Kerry would have been a better candidate for post-Bush. Mm. But then we wouldn't have had Obama. So. But I don't know if Beto would just be, it's almost a waste to run now. Problem is, is that, and this is what I mean when I say, you know, he's losing ground. If he, if he wants to be president, he needs to announce now because he needs to get his policies out. Mm. Because people think of him as he's progressive and he was going to change Texas and that's great. And I think he's really interesting and a really great politician. And I think he would have been fabulous in the Senate. Yeah. But what are his national policies? What does he feel about uh, defence spending? What's his view on a Green New Deal? How would he approach the Medicare for all issue? I think that's the problem is that he doesn't have national policies. Yeah. Which is fair enough because he's never needed to. No, no, yeah. Have but if he wants to run for president, he needs to have them and he needs to. Yeah. He needs to get them out there. Yeah. So let's move on to <sighs> Virginia. So I guess we should start with the racist bit first and then we'll deal with the sexual assault. What a, what a, what a choice. <laughs> I know. And I couldn't really work out which was better to start with. I mean, they're just both I think, dreadful. <laughs> yeah, no, start with the racism because that came yeah. out first. So um, the governor of Virginia is a Democrat called Ralph Northam. Governor Northam was previously a doctor for a very long time. And recently a photo came out, which is supposedly from, well, it is from his yearbook. It's it's on his page of two people, one of whom is dressed in blackface and the other is dressed in a KKK outfit, so white hood and etc. What's he dressed as? Well, this is the question. It's not clear which one he is after the two of them. Oh, but he's one of them. Well, it's on his page in the yearbook. So when this first broke on Twitter, his his Twitter account released a statement saying, "I'm, you know, I'm very sorry for the for the photograph. It was not appropriate or acceptable, etc." A couple of days later, he stages a, a press conference where he essentially walks back that apology and says that he wasn't in the photo at all. But then, then he says that he has in the past worn blackface, and it was when he was going to a dance competition and entering as a Michael Jackson tribute. So he wore blackface. It was very strange. Then one of the reporters asked if he could still moonwalk. And he honestly looked like he was about to do it before his wife, get your wife like this, literally just grabbed his arm and went, not appropriate. We actually have no idea which one Ralph Northam is, whether actually he is one of the people in these in this photo it's very strange as to why it would be on his page in the yearbook if it wasn't him yeah so one of them is like to be him regardless of whichever one he is it's not good no because do you want to be the guy who's wearing the makeup that has really egregious racist history or do you want to be the guy wearing the outfit that's from an overtly racist organisation that lynched black people and was a domestic terror organisation, and still is. On the subject of the KKK, over New Year's, we watched together Black Klansman. Um, it was a very, very good film. 
everyone should go and watch it. Particularly the ending credits, how it links the KKK from, you know, they're not just this organisation from history, but how it links to now is very good. Yes. Great film. Also, the soundtrack is fantastic. Yes. Soundtrack is really good. Not only um, the music that they choose, but also the original score is really good as well. Yeah. Blackface Gate doesn't end there. It then turns out that Attorney General for Virginia, Mark Herring, who's also a Democrat, also wore blackface as a young man. Two of the top Democratic officials and two of the top officials in the state of Virginia have basically come up against this racist past, which Republicans are obviously using as much as possible because this is actually not that long ago that they did this. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not. Um, and, and it's not, as much as it's not that long ago, it's also not that long after a time when black people were being lynched and terrorised in the South on, on the regular. Also interesting because Virginia's quite a red state, isn't it? Virginia's the gateway to the South. And it's interesting because it ha- it still has maintained a strong democratic thread within it because of the history of the Democratic Party typically mm-hmm. used to represent the South until the 60s when um, civil rights movement and that kind of thing. So Tim Kaine, who was Hillary Clinton's running mate, is the senator for Virginia. So it's, it's interesting and it's it's got a lot of electoral college votes. If you mm-hmm. want to know more about that, listen to my 10-minute take. Please go and listen to it. <laughs> yes, so it's it's an interesting state, and it is the state that I would say is the one to watch if you want to see how Democrats might perform in the South. Mm. So, yeah. It's just, it's every bit of it is awful, and it's just been handled appallingly. This photograph of Ralph Northam is supposedly from 1984. The last lynching in the United States was in 1981. Well, the last officially recorded lynching. Yeah, I was about to say, it was debatable. Yeah, it was 1981. A guy called Michael Donald. Yeah, no, in the context of then, and yeah, that's very, very inappropriate. Mm. Three years later is no time at all. But then it gets worse and it does get worse because if Ralph Northam stepped down, then the person who would step up to the plate and become governor would be the current lieutenant governor, who's a guy called Justin Fairfax. And Justin Fairfax, if he became governor of Virginia, would be the second black governor. However, he's been accused of uh, two instances of sexual assault by two different women. So one woman claims that he assaulted her during the 2004 Democratic National Convention in Boston and forced her to perform oral sex on him. And then the other woman accused him of raping her in 2000 whilst they were both students at Duke University. And she says that his actions were, and I quote, premeditated and aggressive. Right. So here we are again. Yeah. And actually, there has been calls for his resignation from various parts of the Democratic Party. Patrick Hope, who is a Democrat within the Virginia House of Representatives, said that if uh, Fairfax doesn't resign, he will introduce articles of impeachment on Monday. Okay. So when this pod is coming out. So yeah, we might be out of date, but um, yeah, this is this is something that politicians frequently do that really annoys me. Is you 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 have to put party before yourself. The amount of people who don't step down when they should. Mm, yeah. Really, really irritates me. Yes. Unsure if the microphone is picking this up for our dear listeners, but the orange order are currently marching outside my house. <laughs> <laughs> you hate a tin whistle. I hate a tin whistle. So, yes, Tim Kaine, uh, Senator for Virginia, said in a Twitter statement that the accusations against Mr. Fairfax were atrocious crimes. Fairfax has denied both the allegations and he said that the second one was demonstrably false. And then this is what he said. So I demand a full investigation into these unsubstantiated and false allegations. Such an investigation will confirm my account because I am telling the truth. So basically, Virginia is just imploding at the moment. Yeah, that's fascinating. There's no clear succession plan if Northam, Herring and Fairfax resign. Well, would there be a special election for governor? Well, the last time there was a vacancy was in 1971 after the lieutenant general, uh, lieutenant governor died and there was a special election to fill the vacancy. But it's not 100% clear what the what the... Be. Protocol is, yeah. Yeah. So um 
it's it's waiting to unfold essentially this one mm. but yeah that's not going away anytime soon no so we'll have to see and that that's it really these things are awful in and of themselves mm-hmm. they're not just awful for political reasons like wearing yeah, a blackface yeah. is wrong sexually assaulting people is wrong like end of yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it also is going to be a serious issue I think for 2020 the key state officials in kind of a really important state having worn blackface and this coming to light the same week that Stacey Abrams delivered the response to the State of the Union which was excellent by the way if you haven't seen it um so it's it's not um not good that's the understatement of the year I mean, that's why I feel every week we talk about stuff and I'm I like, know. none of this is good. <laughs> one one week, we will have good news. It's just all around appalling, isn't it? Yeah, and the thing is that you get people who come out and say, oh, these are the allegations won't stand up or they were so long ago or blah, blah, blah. But I think whenever they come out, I'm not surprised. No. And I think that's because of our experiences of women and like the things that men say and do that they think are appropriate and just aren't. Mm-hmm. And then when you add power into that mix so I'm never never surprised no power corrupts and the way it corrupts is often that it it isn't that it's power that makes people do bad things because people do bad things regardless it's power that makes people think that they can cover it up and get away with it yeah no so on that depressing note we'll uh, wrap it up there went to a great concert this week oh did you what did you guess mm, I went to see the Scottish Symphony Orchestra oh okay. perform right, that's very cultured um they have a series called composer roots and it was about marla and about the jewish roots to his music it was fabulous it was really really good my dad likes marla so you guys can discuss that shout out to uh john (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it was excellent it was really good the scottish symphony orchestra were sublime as per usual because the last time i saw them i went in end of September and they were doing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue which was really good I don't like Gershwin either actually I have a story about Marla um, okay hit me up so in September I was in Budapest on holiday and we went on this little walking tour and part of that took us by the um state opera building whatever thing and around the top of the building they have um busts of lots of composers and during um, World War II, when the Nazis were in control of Hungary, one of the top Nazis basically asked whoever was in charge of Budapest to remove the statue of Marla because he's Jewish. Um, and so whoever was on top of the, uh, the Budapest opera house um, was looking at the statues and they didn't know which one was Marla. So they decided to just get rid of the one with the biggest nose, which turned out to be... Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, oh, that's, oh, that's excellent. That's really good. Yeah. Oh. So so indifferent because uh, Wagner and anti-Semitism go hand in hand. Well, yes. When you become the victim of your own horrible racist stereotype about Jewish people. Yeah. yeah there's a nice irony to that. Oh, yes. He chucked off a building for it. <laughs> Mashed them to the ground. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what have you been reading? So I finished that book about speeches. Mm-hmm. I talked about last week, which was really good. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's quite long. Getting to the end of it, I, I was excited for it to be over. Um, and I enjoyed the book, don't get me wrong, but I just, yes, it was. it's quite a big book, quite small font. So, I feel like that's a book that I would more dive in and out of rather than read in one big go. Yes, and I think if I was recommending it to someone, I would probably suggest that would be the approach to take um, because it was quite heavy at times. So mm. I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it and I would recommend it. It was well written. Um, I just maybe wouldn't recommend reading all of it in one week. Um, but then I just started a new book, which... Um, I mentioned really early in one of the podcast episodes that I'm reading through the Penguin History of the Monarchs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they are like quite slim, small volumes. So, you know, you can, you can read them in an afternoon, really. So I'm currently reading the one about uh, James II. The last Catholic king. 
but I was talking to my mum about this yesterday and it seems slightly illogical that I haven't started from the beginning but if I started from the beginning I know I would get really bored midway through the middle ages yeah and then I would uh Athelstan and then it would get interesting again but then I would end up having to at the end do all of the monarchs post-Victoria and that's the bit of like English royal history that I'm like I just don't care about yeah so at least if I do it this way if I just sort of like jump in and out and just pick the one that I feel like reading I can at some point be like okay I'll read about George V this time and I'll just get it over and done with but yeah it's very good and then I think I'm going to read some fiction this week so yeah I picked up a book in Sainsbury's which is I've forgotten the name of it. It's a Scandinavian author and it's it's about a cult. It's, it's fiction and I'm just like, oh, maybe I'll just read that this week because I've been reading some pretty heavy duty stuff recently and I, I think I might just read, just read some trash fiction, basically. <laughs> Why not? And you've got big margins. <laughs> well, um, how about so you? I haven't finished Heroic Failure by Finton at all. But I have made progress. I've read the first two chapters. Exciting. And I just wanted to share with you, it is very good. And um, I do buy into a lot of his arguments, except for one. Okay. Towards the end of the first chapter, he has this sentence and I read it and I thought, where the hell is this going? And then he he rolled with it for four pages. I was like, please, will this end? So here's here's how he opens up this point. It does not seem entirely beside the point that in the years immediately leading up to Brexit, by far the biggest selling book by an English author in any genre was E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, It is a fantasy of submission and dominance. It is not hard to fantasise, in turn, a political adaptation in which Christian Grey is the European Union and Anastasia Steele, an innocent England seduced into entering his red room of pain. I hate this. I know. I know. You should also say that, like, A, Fifty Shades of Grey is not literature, set it alight, and B, does not represent a a healthy relationship. So then he spends the next four pages with excerpts from Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, So unnecessary. So then he says, for most of the readers of Fifty Shades, the appeal was entirely, entirely vicarious. It was not about anything that was or might be real in their lives. It was make-believe bondage, exactly like the Brexiteers' make-believe version of England's bondage to Europe. Grey is a Brexiteers' mad mirage Brussels bureaucrat. The book is not about sex, it is about rules. So then he has another excerpt. And then Fifty Shades is indeed hilariously bureaucratic. And he just goes on and on comparing this. And so he ends it by saying, you know, we we hate paperwork, but we we liked the fact that we were bound to Europe. And Britain so has is... spent forty five years hanging from the ceiling in the red room of pain, with clamps on its nipples and a gag in its mouth. It's it was just a lot. I really just it turns my stomach. I know, I know, because he started at this point, and I thought, really, please do not roll with this, and then it kept going. Oh. Do you and want no one had that... warned me about this either. No one had told me that he made this comparison. That needs to be a giant, like, you know, like a film has a rating. That needs to be included on the blurb. Well, now we're going to have to include it on the podcast because I'm talking about nipples. <laughs> I mean, nipples are just a part of the human anatomy and, you know. Well, Instagram banned them, so. Only female ones. Yeah, because obviously it's got nothing to do with uh, the inherent patriarchy. Mm. Anyway, do you want to know something that will cheer you up? I have nothing to say that will cheer me up. Do you have something to say that will cheer mm-hmm. me up? I have, oh, a, okay. I have a nice thing. So the audiobook that I started, because mm-hmm. people keep asking me, they're like, how do you have so much time to read? I don't sleep. So <laughs> yeah, this is true. I'm a raging insomniac, so <laughs> I just have a lot of time to read. But I um, I started listening to an audiobook when I'm like walking to and from university or like at the gym. And it's called I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. 
which is that actually sums up both of our listeners. Indeed, yes. Well, it, it's by two ladies who also run a political podcast, much more successful than us, called Pantsuit Politics. And Beth Silvers is a sort of typical Republican. Sarah Stuart Holland is a typical Democrat, but they're good friends. I say typical Republican. She is like a never Trumper. She's yeah. like old school Republican. Um, and this is their book. And it's it's about, I think the subtitle is something like Your Guide to Having Grace Filled political conversations it's just lovely it's really positive and really um they're just very kind to each other and kind to other people's perspectives and um it certainly has like a christian bent because they both are people of faith but Mm -hmm. it's not only from a christian perspective if that makes sense okay Yeah, yeah yeah it's just really nice it's just it's nice to hear a conversation that's reasonable and rational and presents two perspectives and I often come away from the chapters being like, oh, I came into this chapter with one opinion and now I'm not sure what my opinion is. Oh, that is good, actually. Yeah, um, because they both make, they're both former lawyers and they're just great. Yeah, they're really, really good. So it's a really nice, I would really recommend it. Um, It's not out in actual book form in the UK, I think, until March the 5th, but you can get it on Audible. I am doing the baby pod this week. And I am going to cover the thrilling topic of the case for impeachment against Donald Trump. Um, wait. Yeah, I'm really excited. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what is impeachment and what's the kind of like process for it. And then we'll talk a bit about uh, the likely reasons Donald Trump would be impeached and that sort of thing. Yeah. That will be out on Thursday this week, though, not Wednesday. Okay. Got a job interview. <laughs> oh dear that's a very valid point <laughs> good luck oh, thank you you can find us on twitter at desert underscore politics you can find us on instagram at desert politics pod you can follow me on twitter at katie underscore brooks 95 if you are so inclined if you want to you can follow me on twitter at queen of Fanta. and she is she's a real hoot <laughs> It's galore over here. Galore. Yeah. You know. Just ragingly sarcastic on Twitter. So, yes, we'll speak to you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Can you remember it? Sorry, I just <laughs> had a real moment and I was thinking about. Uh, Jeff Bezos for some reason.